Out of the 95 Best Picture winners, only one will be crowned the bestest of the best. This is the final stretch of the quest for the bestest from Backlot Banter. Your hosts are Timo Nelson, Abram Buner, Tucker Hazel, and Tanner Dykstra. You can find more of our content on YouTube and Twitter at Backlot Banter. The episode gets started in just a moment. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Quest for the Bestest. It's the podcast from Backlot Banter, where us four Backlot boys review every single Best Picture winner, and we are oh so close to finishing. Indeed, we were just discussing it before we hit roll on the episode. We got like two more after this. It's the 93rd episode of the Quest for the Bestest. My name is Timo, joined by Abram Tanner and Tucker, as always. And today, in the final stretch, we are going to be talking about Mel Gibson's 1995 uh, medieval epic Braveheart. Um, a film I had never seen before, and I am pleased to have, have now seen it. It's one of the movies of all time, definitely, uh, that gets brought up. And so happy to be talking about it here. But before we really talk about it, we've got to remind you of what happened last time, because not only did we talk about a movie, we talked about Million Dollar Baby, but we actually couldn't really figure out where that film went. We f- were pretty stumped. There was a big three-way tie at the 7.9 number spot. So... We left it up to you guys, to the viewers, and uh, although we received few votes, we did receive. By our own fault, by the way, because we are recording this, you know, a mere what, 24 hours, I think, a little 25 hours after that episode went live. So, you know, yeah. that's that's on us, you know. Uh, we were hoping that, you know, people have the notifications on. Ring the bell, by the way, for mm-hmm. the Backlot Banter YouTube channel. And subscribe. Uh, so you can weigh in on these uh, these pressing matters as soon as they come to forefront. But what was decided was that Million Dollar Baby would go at the top of the 7.9 ties. So above Slumdog Millionaire, which we were debating, and above Mutiny on the Bounty, which we were also debating. So at the 44th spot, the, the newest entry on our list is Million Dollar Baby. Clint Eastwood's movie, so yeah, congratulations. I it's that's like in the middle of the list, almost I almost straight in the middle of the list. True. Yep. Yep. Now, uh, yep, Do we have a comment to be read to be read aloud? A proclamation, perhaps, from a uh, a viewer afar, written on a on a like a parchment scroll. Is this supposed to be a oh, brave we have to get reference? we have to get run o- we have to get it run over by our by our fellow friends. Send, of some send, sort? send a writer to go read the comments. Oh, yes, 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 sure. Abram, uh, yeah, we do, and it's it's the comment that comes from our Discord server. Join our Discord uh, link in the description. This comes from our our treasured friend and associate and son uh, Al Naz, who gave us that vote for um, the position of Million Dollar Baby. So I'm just going to skip his preamble about that position and dive right into the meat of the comment where. Al writes, thanks for the great discussion with great points that people probably didn't think about when they saw the movie upon its release in 2004. I saw Million Dollar Baby when it came out before the hashtag MeToo and Time's Up movements, so I do need to rewatch it. Although I agree with Tucker that the emotional impact of the film outweighs what it has to say for me. And Hilary Swank's performance is one of the best female performances of the 2000s. I give a lot of weight to strong characters, relationships, and performances. I'm interested in people and relationships. I do need to rewatch this movie for the political climate today, though, which is different from 2004. To sum up, this isn't just a box movie for me. I also agree with Abram and Tanner on the great noirish lighting, and I do like the solid classical filmmaking with good production value. The film also just resonated emotionally with me. Well, there yeah. you go. Thanks, Alnaz. Very well written. Lovely comment. Yeah, we like a yeah. comment that gasses us up a little bit. You mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I mean, and Almaz is very good at that. Just, yeah. a, oh, yeah. just a ray of sunshine every time that he has Absolutely. something to say in the Discord. I love yeah. it. Yep. And then so he come... comes in and he's like, oh, actually, I've met everyone that you've ever thought of was in a movie. I'm like, whoa, <laughs> wow, that's crazy. 
So come join the Discord and be around people like Al. Don't let our presence there scare you away. No, no absolutely not. Lots of cool it people. It would, initially, but... There are other people, not just us. <laughs> I mean, I'm just trapped just... in a dark room with the four of us. God, that's <laughs> terrifying. You have to ignore me, like photoshopping Tim Allen's face under the Alien Covenant poster to make Well, you would Alan never Covenant. do that, right? You, right? you would never do that. No, right? no, no. Okay, you, okay, okay. Get around that. Uh huh. Enough rambling. Let's talk about the movie Braveheart. Okay. Uh, do we need a plot synopsis, or should we just dive right into the uh, the meat and what we thought about the film? I'll do a don't, plot synopsis. Don't okay. Tradition, I like doing these. Okay. Okay. Help, so help, our, help our viewers out, you know? We are in, you know, the... Uh, we are, it's, in, it's, like a, it's like 1138 or something like 13th that. 13th some, century. Some, some year that seems so century. early that it doesn't even exist. Yeah. And we meet a young William Wallace. All right. As far as we're aware, history, human history starts with, like, World War One. Yeah. <laughs> True. No. So this is like, I don't know, this is Cro-Magnon times. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> William Wallace, okay, he's a he's a young lad in the Scot in the Scottish uh, countryside, and uh, you know what? The British, as they are off to do, are giving the people around them a real hot, a real tough time. <laughs> uh, they want to just take over. They want to own Scotland. You know, they want to own a lot of places, so Scotland is one of them. And the Scottish people, if you can't believe it, not too keen on being like controlled by the British. So. Uh, after his father is killed by the British, uh, William Wallace goes off with his uncle and, you know, gets, a, gets alerted, travels the world a little bit, and by that I mean he travels around Europe, uh, and comes back to, uh, sort of, uh, put together a movement, uh, of the Scottish people against the British controlling, you know, uh, monarchy. Um, he stages some revolution, uh, stages some insurgency in the, in the great nation of Scotland, and even hopped across that little channel to go and take, take the fight to the British themselves. But uh, things don't work out too swell for our, for our pal Will Wall. Uh, he, the love Will of his Wall. life, his childhood, yeah, is <laughs> Will Wall. Uh, the love of his life, obviously, uh, is killed by uh, some British soldiers. Um, and uh, eventually he is betrayed and captured before being uh, brutally tortured and murdered uh, for his crimes against beheaded the British crown. Beheaded even. Beheaded even. Bedicked. Uh, but... Well, actually disemboweled. <laughs> Apparently, we misunderstood that scene when we watched that. Tucker. No, he, I believe he was also castrated. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, no, yeah. He was bad. That's his head that's cannon. Be <laughs> that's besides the point. Uh, but, of course, you know, he but did inspire besides. some change. <laughs> he did He did inspire uh, some people around him that eventually did, uh, posthumously for William Wallace, go on to uh, gain independency for Scotland. For a little yeah. while until history shows us that England then well, recaptured yeah. them like 200 years later. But it's okay. Well, this this film doesn't really have much of a regard for history, so I don't think that's too important. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and I want to center this conversation around historical accuracy in, in some areas. Because this is a film that I watched in theaters. Tanner and I got to see it on like a, what, 30th anniversary, 40th anniversary something like showing, that. something like that. Um, it actually, doesn't even, doesn't even line up. We saw it in theaters. Uh, yeah. A couple years ago, and neither of us had seen it at that point. And watching a film that is so grand in scale was really just an impressive experience, especially because it is so uncommon for us to be able to go and recapture that big screen cinematic experience with a film that was intended to be seen on this kind of in that kind of style. And when I saw it the first time, both of us absolutely loved it. I'm spoiling a little bit of Tanner's thoughts. And rewatching it here, I had kind of forgotten why I liked it that first time. But as the film starts getting, starts gathering its momentum, I'm like, oh yeah, never mind. I remember why I like this movie. And then I think it loses a lot of steam going into that second half. Um, and I, so I still like the movie. Um, and I think that it's impressive in a lot of ways. 
But I think my, I'm a lot more critical on it uh, in a, on a second watch. I, I don't know if the characters really stand up to much scrutiny. The, the plot is very basic. Um, and I, I don't find the political underpinnings of this whole situation particularly compelling or well spelled out. Um, and obviously it's a mess historically. So, um, I, but I think this film is, is very good on the whole. Um, and I'm excited to sort of break this down and maybe with three other brains pick apart the, the themes and the characters of, of which I am not uh, very certain on in Braveheart. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tucker, I'll, I'll, co- I'll come up right on uh, after you there because, yeah, I mean, you, you spelled out a lot of my thoughts as well. Of course, we did see this for the 25th anniversary of this film. I believe oh, yes. we saw this in 2020, uh, early 2020, of course. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, I really liked it then. Uh, waned on it, just mostly because, I again, I forgot why I liked it as much. And then on a rewatch, of course, I was like, I was reminded. Um, and I don't know as much uh, if I agree with the the sort of common complaint I'm gonna I think we're gonna see about it losing steam in the second half I think I think it is pretty consistent uh all the way through um and it just maintains maintains a very good tenor all the way through for me um I think there are you know some things that Tucker you said there uh about you know our characters not being the most complex or uh the, you know the the political themes not being the most in-depth or complex either um but at the at the same time uh, what, what really what really struck me about this rewatch of Braveheart is like, yes, it's like a historical epic, but it's also like a like a slobs versus snobs movie, which is you know <laughs> which is typically a genre that is reserved for like Revenge of the Nerds and Caddyshack and stuff like mm-hmm. that. But we've taken that and we put it on this his, his historical epic, and that's why I think this is so endearing why Mel Gibson is sort of very charismatic in this role and why his supporting characters are so fun to watch him pal around with as they, you know, chop the heads off of British soldiers is because it's a slobs versus snobs movie. It's just endearing, just an endearing way to structure a story in a conflict. Yeah, yeah. Abram, what do you think? Yeah, I don't know. I, th- I think it's fun. That's kind of where my thoughts on Braveheart begin and end. Uh, I made a comment. See you next time, guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Stay I cool. made a comment. <laughs> Keep warm. Uh, I, I made a comment about halfway through my viewing, because I took a break to have dinner, um, that I felt like I'd seen Braveheart. I didn't need to see the other 90 minutes. I, like, I kind of get it. Um, and having now seen all uh, three hours of the film, I, I don't necessarily agree that the pacing is worse in the second half. I just don't think the film has enough sort of material to sustain mm. it for three hours. That's more yeah. my issue. I Because the, the second half of the film still has a lot of plot. It still has a lot of action. There's still a lot of things happening that, that keep that pace up. But the problem for me is that the success of Braveheart is in its spectacle. It's beautifully shot. The The score is sweeping and huge. Those action sequences are bloody and, and exciting. But I agree. I just don't think that the characters are really characters. They're, they're like pieces that further a plot for the most part, in my opinion. I don't really think the po- the politics of the film are really a factor. Uh, basically, everyone involved in the political intrigue of this movie is like a D-tier character. I, It's it's ostensibly just like a, a movie about like American freedom, ultimately, which I also yeah. want to talk about. So I'm not yeah. even that invested in it as like a historical piece. What I'm really interested in the movie on, uh, on the level of is like, 
Damn, it's cool watching Mel Gibson kill some guys. Damn, the movie shot really well. There are some great moments of wit throughout the film. But I just don't think that those tenets are enough for me to look at a three-hour Braveheart endeavor and say, yeah, I'm totally satisfied by it. Because I just don't mm-hmm. think there's actually a lot of substance here. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. I think I'm, I'm finding myself pretty much in agreement. I'll synthesize the points that all of you have made in that I did find it fun. Um, I was, was thinking to myself, you know, ah, they don't really pick very many like medieval movies to have as best picture winners. The medieval movie genre is not something that usually ga- garners a lot of award wins with like, you know, sword and shield and s- slashing and killing. And there's no, it's not a fantasy movie because it's trying to be realistic, which I think it, at least on a surface viewing, if you're not thinking about it too hard, it succeeds in the dudes are wearing like the right clothes. And then you, you look at the battle and you're like, why do the two forces just run at each other and then engage in a gigantic it, that's not how they fought battles back then but nonetheless i um i was entertained although i think that the the characters are particularly weak i think that the i don't even remember her name but his love at the beginning of the movie murin murin mm-hmm. is is not she is not a character and has zero uh ha, she had no agency and she had no defining characteristics to her at all um, and so attractive to Mel Gibson. Yeah. Or, or they were, they were childhood friends that there you go. Boom. Sure. Oh, mm-hmm. I forgot about that part. Yeah. Yes. So the film, while it succeeds on it's like big level, I think in terms of pulling me through this narrative that is for the most part, like going, I think I'd like the first half better, but the second half is all right. I, I am in on the political intrigue. I I'm like figuring out, you know, what's going on and, I, I like this king character and his stupid his fail son and uh, you know the that it's a it's an, an engaging enough plot line. There is some thematic material in here. I think the film is trying to talk about stuff of of death of like knowing when your time is coming versus like mm-hmm. not wanting to uh, not wanting to die or to wanting to die in a in a good or a valiant way. Um, but I don't really think the film like nails down what it's trying to say in any regards. Even though it is very long, it doesn't, I think, spend a whole lot of time focused on themes and whatnot. Yeah. Instead, we get battle sequences, which are fun in their own right. But they don't, I think, push us into our, our stereotypical quest discussion of a, uh, of a Best Picture winner. Yeah. Yeah. So from that lens, uh, actually, you know what? You know what I'll do? I'll, I'll switch it up a little bit. I'll, I'll harken back to how we used to start the uh, the Best Picture nominee review videos, and I'll, I'll, I'll list off the wins and noms up top so we can sort of have a lens on which to discuss this film. All right. So Braveheart won Best Picture. Hey, that's what we're talking about here today. Uh, it also won Best Director for Mel Gibson, uh, Best Cinematography for Cinematographer John Toll, Best Sound Editing, and Best Makeup. It was nominated for Best Original Screenplay, written by Randall Wallace, Best Costume Design, Best Sound, Best Editing, and Best Original Score. Pretty pretty sweeping across the board there. That's a the lot text. of nominees. Except for acting, it basically got everything. <laughs> yeah, it is interesting that you know this film got no acting nominations. I think it was the only uh, Best Picture nominee, and obviously this is quite rare for a Best Picture nominee, a Best Picture winner, no less, to get no acting nominations. It's true. Well, yeah. should we start there? I mean, the acting sure. isn't... Like, what would you nominate out of this film in the first place? You know what I mean? I just think the default is to have the guy playing a historical figure and giving a loud, brash sort of... 
frankly iconic performance yes, to be sure. nominated for best actor, even if it's not like the most heartfelt, the most heartfelt or like complex layered character. I think that like I I didn't know the nom the nominees for this, and I'm I'm surprised that the thing on face level is like okay, I know what the Academy usually does. It's like mm-hmm. yeah, he he's totally doing that role, and and I think that he does it really really well. I think that it's the script that doesn't do William Wallace uh the most justice, but. Mel Gibson absolutely gives this his all and makes William Wallace a character that you really want to follow and root for because he has this sort of twinkle in his eye when he's being a little bit charming and and has the incredibly commanding presence. But is also like a really charming guy that can kind of bring the tension down when he needs to and bring tension up when he needs to. Um, I, I would have... Like to have said, I don't know the other nominees from this year, so maybe you know they're all better than this. But um, <laughs> I I think it would have been a totally fine nominee for best actor. Yeah, I mean it is interesting because I agree that he is quite charismatic in this role. I mean he is. Uh, it, it, I'm gonna keep bringing this up because I feel like it's a, a a great observation that I've made. If I can just pat myself on the back a little bit about Braveheart being a slobs versus snobs movie, mm-hmm. and he is the. Uh, He's the the centerpiece of that. Uh, he has to be, you know, the the charming guy who goes out and you know is learned and goes to Rome and with his uncle Brian Cox, who I like to see show up in this <laughs> just for a brief time. Rip. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, for for those who know, know. Um, and of course, uh, he comes back and you know that's what the, he he stands out ab- among the rest of these Scottish characters here because you know. He speaks Latin and French, and he knows about the tactics and how to get inside people's minds just because he's seen the world a little bit more. Um, and I think the, he is quite good in these uh, brief, uh, mostly contained in the first act of the film, uh, romantic sequences with Marin. I think that there's a sensitivity to him in those moments as well. But there, he also brings out the fierceness that is required of the William Wallace character, uh, the charismatic a uh, warlord leader that brought vi- that you know brought righteous violence against the British crown. Uh, I think he has a lot to work with here, actually, and Mel Gibson does make the most of it. I think. Yeah, I mean, I I just think that a lot of things aside from Mel Gibson's sort of um, delivered performance give the character of of Freedom Braveheart a lot of their personality. I I first of all I think it's Mel Gibson's size. A, mm. a, lo- a lot of what does it for me is how big he is and his big mane of hair yes. and the way that he's makeuped and the way that he's choreographed. And there are a couple great uh, moments of performance from him. The two that stand out to me is, is one, it's a war movie, so you got to have the rousing speech. And he gives quite a rousing speech. Yes. Uh, the, of course, you know, uh, they can take a life, but they won't take our freedom is one of the most iconic movie lines, movie quotes of all time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. he, But also saying that doesn't make a lot of sense in the context of the film is like he's talking to like the 10 guys in the front. And there's like, there's like, you know, it's 900 of them or whatever. It's like, All right. Cinema sins dig. We get it. The people Cinema, in the back like, world sins. Like, I, I just want to know, like, how did they, how did they deliver speeches to a crowd of that size before? <laughs> I, I don't know. I just, I, I was thinking about that the entire time. I don't know why. <laughs> it's, it's like, he has that moment and he also has a moment that I really like when he's speaking with the princess and the aide says something in, I think it's Latin to mm-hmm. her. And then he replies in Latin there's a couple moments where he's able to illustrate through his delivery of, of dialogue that he's working with some material here. But for the most part, I think it's 
I think it's the hands of all the people around Mel Gibson, Mel Gibson's time in the gym that, that makes um, huh. William Wallace a compelling character. I, it just goes back to what I think, one of the points we're harping on, that the review is like, I just don't think that these characters are that deep. Mm, and yeah. I just don't think that the, ar- the arc that um, Wallace goes across lends itself to a lot of great acting opportunities. Yeah. There's not Be- too much of an arc. Yeah. And I think that yeah. that is why I don't love his character as like an iconic, really interesting movie character to me. I think that I put more emphasis on his performance because I think what he is given, he sells in terms of being a personality. Sure. I think he has a good variety of personality traits mm-hmm. in that he can be fierce and he can be charming and he can be witty. Like he covers those bases very well. But in terms of William Wallace as a person, as an intricate character with a backstory that I really know super well and I know it, like the why he's chasing these things it's all it's all very surface level and i think that for me that's a script problem and not necessarily on mm-hmm. on the performance because what we're given from him is sad childhood and then confident adulthood uh, outside of the moments when he has to be sad because his wife of 20 minutes just died um but <laughs> th- those are not enough for me to really feel like this guy i i can resonate with this guy like i really know his, how his clock ticks except for if his clock is ticking just because he's just, you know, a confident guy and he wants to see freedom. But to me, that's just not enough to like be like, oh, my God, William Wallace, one of the, like interesting movie characters of all time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. I think that William Wallace could have been played by a, a bunch of different people. It's it, it, Abram. You're kind of right that Mel Gibson um, embodies the physical role very well. But I do think if we were to remake the movie, you could cast like somebody else in the sim- Chris Pratt. Yeah, something like that, you know. And they and they would do like a similar level job because I actually really do think that he's missing some character notes. The Yeah. We don't really ever there's a there's a bit where he's like reluctant to fight and he doesn't want to. Um and he just wants to like raise his family and of course the his his wife is killed. It, seemingly she exists in the plot to be killed. Um but the, She's not a real person in, in history, as we can get to the, the historical inaccuracies of this movie in a bit. But, <laughs> but I think that the there we're we aren't shown that that moment where he he redirects his anger towards the British and and to where he himself has this realization of the leader that he is capable of and that he kind of needs to be. It just kind of happens, and we see the before and we see the after. But I, I would—that's an important character moment. I would really have liked to seen him struggle to like, I need to take up this mantle, or I need to go and ride out and and enact my vengeance. Um, we understand, I think, a lot of what's happening and why people are doing stuff in this film because it gets away with not saying a whole lot. A lot of the cinematography and the the script. I think is is very sparse and uses a lot of looks. We get so many glances, shot reverse shot of like people looking at each other in this movie over and over and over again, mm. which is doing a lot of like plot level lifting, but that does mean that it's like there's not so much performance when the characters like literally are only acting with their faces most of the time. Yeah. Mm. Um I Timo, I think you bring up a a good point there in that it seems like such like it's it's a connection you can draw, but I don't know if a lot is uh, born out of it or written out of it to be like, William Wallace decided to do this because Murren was killed. 
Um, yeah. And, you know, that is the, that is the impetus for, for, you know, his uh, initial assault on the British soldiers. But I feel like that kind of gets away from the movie a little bit. And um, it, it does largely get concerned with, you know, the uh, camaraderie of the rest of the guys and him, the, the intrigue of him being betrayed and who's really on his side. And like Robert the Bruce being swayed a little bit between William Wallace and his father. Um, and it, it comes around in a big part at the end, obviously. I just don't know if it's there, if it's present in, you know, he has a dream sequence somewhere towards the middle of the film. But... I don't think that conflict that, you know, that drive within William Wallace is truly explored uh, to a certain extent. That yeah. drive becomes William Wallace loves freedom. And don't you too, American viewer of this freedom. film. <laughs> yes. Um, but also, uh, to, to Maybe the most the... dramatic single line in a movie. Yes. Yeah, single <laughs> yeah. word. You, you can see it. Single word. This, this, is, this is a uh, commendation upon Mel Gibbons' performance. You can see it like bubbling up yeah. through his throat and everything cool stuff but <laughs> massive uh, timo mm -hmm. to your to your comment about how anyone could have played william wallace uh oh, there is me, of course with a uh iconic role we've been throwing that word iconic around jokingly or seriously it is an iconic role though um for an iconic role right that like this there were a number of people considered uh, apparently um mill gibson did not want to play the title role and only wanted to direct um, but only, but Paramount would only agree to produce the film if Gibson starred. But a number of the names that were thrown out, you know, apparently people who were considered. Mel Gibson wanted actors Jason Patrick and Brad Pitt to play the title role. Brad Pitt. Huh. Yeah. Jeez. Ninety-five. Hmm. Brad Pitt, right off a of seven, was gonna is gonna play in. Uh, is gonna. Well, be he in certainly would have been more accurate to the supposed age of this character. Yes. Because he's yes, supposed to be issue. like you know mid 20 late 20 yeah, something like yeah. that uh and and he's got just deep lines on his mill face gibson like was, jesus yeah mill gibson was 37 playing 25 in this and you can tell that's the 90s 37 <laughs> i know also, other actors considered yeah 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 daniel day lewis liam neeson christopher lambert who's oh, actually scottish jeff bridges and and i don't know if this one is true this seems outlandish to me Robin Williams. No, way. I, I was gonna well. say that jokingly. I was gonna yeah. say that jokingly, but I, I, uh, uh, whoa, yeah, that would be a yeah. very different film. <laughs> it would be, although you know, Robin Williams has done serious in the past, but you know, well, also he usually does serious. Here. He does serious with an edge. Of, well, yeah, no, you're right. You're right. I think yeah. this movie's kind of sold funny. The comedy a little better. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah. It but I, but so I, I think that because you're right. That's exactly okay. why we liked the movie so mm. much when we saw it in theaters is we were surprised by a historical epic of this kind having a humorous edge. You barely ever see that. The other yeah. historical epics that we've watched on this are incredibly dour. Out of Africa, uh, The Last Emperor, Lawrence of Arabia. Ben these Hur. films, Ben-Hur, mm -hmm. these are serious films about people dying and, you know, combat and war and the, the state and that, of the world. And, and that's this what this movie too. is about, except it has some jokes. Yes. Except for it has, yeah, it has like a lot you know, of like and great little wink sometimes visual gags. I think the jokes don't always land, but moments where uh, the king throws his his gay son's gay lover best friend out the window because that's totally how Bailey. that scene's supposed to be coded. Like, come on, like that those two yes. characters. It's so obvious. I don't know. They should just say it. Whatever. Um, they probably wouldn't. I don't know. I don't know how much Mel Gibson wants to tread on 
queer topics during the 90s <laughs> or at all. <laughs> but when he throws that dude out the window, it's like it's an absurd moment, but it is pretty funny. And I think there's a number of it them. It's like Monty Python, the Holy Grail. It does. It does. This movie has that kind of vibe every once in a while. And it's yeah. mostly uh, right. I mean, the entirety of, of the army turns around and shows their naked asses to, yeah, to the It's a Monty English. Python bit. And, it's so and the willies. Don't forget, don't forget they show their cocks to them first, and then they spin around it. They get arrows shot at them, and then they turn around and moon them. And this is exactly, that moment is what hit me and was like, this is like a fucking Revenge of the Nerds movie right here. We have, like, the snooty British men across the way being like, Oh, my, I can't believe they're doing such atrocious things during the honor of battle. <laughs> and then you have the other guys that are, like, waggling their lily-white asses at them. Like, I was like, this is a fucking uh, slobs versus snob story here. Um, I also love, uh, I think, maybe one of the best comedic presences in the film. Uh, and maybe, Tucker, if you can ha pull up... Uh, the cast member, uh, but the character of Stephen, the Irish. Yeah, oh, the I Irish love him. guy. The, yes. When the two, when uh, the, the Irish conscripts and the, the Scots run together, and th at this point, the movie had been running a little dry for a while. Mm -hmm. It didn't have a lot of humor. David O'Hara. They, they, David O'Hara. Thank you. When the, those two armies run up and they're like, "Oh, how you doing?" and like shake, like yeah, they yeah. shake hands. Great, funny moment. But well, like his introduction of him just being like. This crazy dude who is talking directly to God. And he's like, "Oh, do I get to kill Irishmen or do I, do I get to kill Englishmen?" Uh, and he's uh, he, he calls Ireland his island and stuff yeah. like that. And then, of course, you know, he turns around and saves uh, William Wallace's life from the other guy who joined with him, who is seemingly normal. But nay, you got you got to trust what you, you got to trust your heart with these things. And then he goes on to become like a right hand man. For for uh, for William Wallace, along with Brendan Gleeson, who I also think is quite good here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mel, Mel Gibson, known for his tolerance, is trying to tell you not to judge a book by their cover. <laughs> yeah, Braveheart. well, we we probably needed to address the Mel Gibson stuff at some point, and you know, <laughs> thank you for bringing it up, April. <laughs> I don't want to comment on Mel Gibson. No, sure, yeah. <laughs> just um, a, just an awful, despicable human being that Hollywood right. has seemingly forgiven now. Hard to tell. Right. Hard to tell. I, I think that the comedy of this movie, as I said, was a surprise when I saw it. Um, and and certainly the element that kept me so engaged with a movie as epic and historical and as long as this is. And I think the reason why that second half doesn't engage me as much is it's it's noticeably less comedic in yeah, tone, yeah. and it's much more focused on the drama and on the political intrigue of sending messages back and forth and staging. Um, you know the the attack on. That, and on that English city, uh, which I York. can't remember. York. 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 I'm like, I knew it had a famous name. Mm -hmm. uh, it's an old York. Um, but It is old yeah. York. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's my point. Um, yeah, but I, I, the, the second half being less humorous, I guess is kind of natural for the direction the film is going to lead to a dramatic and sort of um, dour ending. But I, I don't... I like humor, and when humor not there, I'm like... <sighs> Yeah, I mean, but I think Tucker, you nail it on the head. Quest though. for the it, bestest analysis at its finest. Yeah, yeah. I think you, Tucker, you nail it on the head there, though, about why it takes that different tone going into the second half of the film. Um, and I'm trying to sort of nail down the uh, exact like turning point of it. Um, it it's got it, it's a, it's obviously around the time where well, so the so the big speech happens. I feel like about the middle of the movie, and there's that yes, that the big, big battle. battle that is is like that's kind of I feel like that's like the Braveheart battle. That is the yes. one that we are, are that is 
stuck around in cultural memory from this film. Yes. And then you might after, think of it as that final act battle, but it's not. It's right it's in a, the middle. The middle, middle, yeah. <clears throat> Is it when he decides to... I think it's probably invade. when... It's, it's when he decides to invade Britain. And now uh, we York. enter into the second plot section in which he's being... He's no longer just, like, fighting, but he's he has to deal with the politics of, of his own lords and, or the lords of yeah, Scotland yeah. and... Mm-hmm. We we do have to get into the like the shifting alliances and betrayals of of the medieval politics, which yeah, is it I don't it's not like terribly interesting. It is kind of it's a it's a great emotional moment when we see him like see when we get to see Mel Gibson play the betrayal. That moment and then well, I forgot I forget who plays Robert the Bruce is like I see it on his face, like I did I was on the wrong side. That is that's an actual like arc and there's a moment there that we actually have some character changes and characters are like you Angus know, McFadden by the way yeah uh, well I, I, he did I thought he did pretty well he was convincing so, um, my uh sorry sorry Timo well this is a I think it's like is... it's, it's I don't know this politics yeah. is is it is it the highest and best use of our runtime maybe maybe not yeah, in the spirit of the cutting off episode, which is what this one is becoming, I'm just going to keep going. <laughs> I, I think what's interesting in the structure of the film is that I look at it like this, because if literally halfway through the film, 90 minutes, we have crowned um, William Wallace as like, sir, right? Yeah. And we're having yeah, the, big yeah. noble ba- the big noble argument, the big scuffle, the scuffle yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, before that point... If we can say that William Wallace has some sort of arc, it's already concluded, essentially, by yeah. by now. Mm-hmm. He goes from being the the, the 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 child with trauma and something to prove to being this passive guy who's sparked to become this revolutionary hero. And he does his revolution. His arc is done by 90 minutes into the film. Mm-hmm. So what it, what it becomes in the second half is more plot. It's basically the, like the adage of in screenwriting, like something has to happen to your characters five minutes before the film begins and five minutes after it ends. But we see 90 minutes after it ends. Yeah. And, and I think that's part of my, part of my issue because what does, Mel, what does, what does, what again, what does Freedom Braveheart have to do in the second half of the movie? He's got to go fight. Are you some referring ba- to the character as Freedom Braveheart? I have yes. done. Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I thought you. I thought you were like making a weird phrase early. I'm like, hold on. He could be referring to the character as that name. Yeah. He, he has nothing else to do but but uh, but to just fight battles. So we we introduce this. He says it's not really an introduction because. Robert the Bruce has been sort of percolating in the background somewhere, but mm-hmm. suddenly he must ostensibly become a protagonist of sorts. Yeah, no, definitely. He's but, a historical but, figure. He's a Civ Six. He's like the Civ Six leader yes. of Scotland. So we got yes. Everybody Christ. knows him. And this yes. is the this is the issue with Braveheart, I think, because the second half then becomes he's Braveheart. About, by the way, that's sure. what the historical name of Braveheart okay. refers to is is Robert the Bruce, which I think is interesting. Never mm-hmm. mentioned the film. Well, yeah, because yeah. the, the second half of the film just becomes about traveling down these political plot lines that are so removed from what we care about as an audience. Yeah, because mm-hmm. it goes back to the motivation of um, of of Bill of, of Bill Wallace. Mm-hmm. I call him uh, Double W or Dub Dub for short. <laughs> sure. Wubba I, I like to think <laughs> about one of the best revenge films, John Wick. Okay. The entirety of John Wick is about moving towards the ultimate root cause 
of the act that's setting us out on a quest for revenge. Mm. It's all about getting to the guy. John Wick ends when we've gotten to the guy and he's done and the quest for revenge has been satiated. The quest for revenge in Braveheart is satiated about 40 minutes into the movie. Either that and, or and the, the quest for the revenge is just such an impossibility of you have to kill the king. Right. It's, which it's, could it's, never happen because that just didn't happen historically. Even, the, so the f- they couldn't diverge that far outside of the bat, like even though they do else, you know, but they could. that would be too far, I think. The film basically expects us to sort of, again, to Tanner's glib point from before, transpose our American feelings about freedom onto this plot and take it on some sort of ideological level. But the ideology of this movie, in my opinion, comes down to New Hampshire's state slogan, live free or die. You can, you can, that's what the entire movie is about after, <laughs> after we've avenged Murrow? M-U-R-R-O-N. And yes. I just and that's my issue. And we, with it feels like with every passing sequence, we're getting further and further and further from the moment I was hooked by Braveheart, yeah. which is when yeah. she gets killed. So uh, I think that what's interesting to to talk about here is a a line in the film because when that halfway point hits and William Wallace in that scuffle among mm-hmm. the nobles is like, "Yo, dogs, we gotta go invade Britain," and they're all like, "That's." Really weird of you to say, William. We thought we were just going for going for freedom for Scotland. And he's like, no, we're going to go invade Italy, England. We're taking York, baby. And then they do, like, without the help of the nobles. You know, at that moment, I was like, okay, why is William doing this? Like, because that, that moment is a perfect moment for you know, a, a new conflict to be introduced, a new internal conflict to be introduced for William Wallace. He is spurned, of course, by the uh, treatment of his family and the killing of Murren by the British soldiers. Uh, and, and he in does... In his country. And, and his country, of course. He, that, that, that's the larger thing. And it sort of stays there. Like you, said, like you said, Abram, it just sort of like that continues out. But yeah. I think to the movie's credit a little bit, they do justify it in with a, with a line in the film, which is York is where, you know... All of the attacks on my country were staged, is what yeah. is what William Wallace says. So it's it's a necessary like strategic step for Scotland's freedom. And then, you know, uh, as we know from the characterization of the, of King Edward Longshanks, he's not one to give up that easily. He's not going to take that embarrassment. So that continued fighting is necessary for the political ends of maintaining Scotland's freedom. He's also. They also do make the attempt of, and again, in that scene that I praised before of um, of William talking to the princess, this notion of, I know what Longshank's piece looks like. It looks like all, all, my, all of these men that tried to negotiate peace in the past hanged in a building and my family mm. killed. Yeah. But I just think that that's too many steps removed from the vengeance quest that the audience is compelled by. But, yeah. but, but I... I, nonetheless, as I said before, it's it's sort of this feeling of, I think we run out of things for for um, for Wallace to want to do, but that doesn't mean that there isn't still interesting stuff that just happens on like a filmic level in the second half. And it yeah. goes back to why I was saying that this is still a fun movie, and I had fun mm-hmm. with it because we get the siege of York, and we mm-hmm. get some more cool battle sequences, and and the plot then becomes the predicate for the stuff happening. It's just that when the plot is the predicate opposed to the character's motivation to avenge his wife, it's a lot less 
in investing. It's a lot more of just here's Absolutely. a cool here's just a cool thing. Yeah. Because cool, things. cool medieval action. And the, yeah. Yeah. The other the other uh trick I think we miss is that Braveheart is 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 or sorry, it's not Braveheart, it's William Wallace as a come to learn. He's beaten. He's shot with an arrow. Yeah. He's basically left for dead, about to be killed, and he's brought back to safety. And we get that moment with um uh Hollis is his name Hollis? Holland Brendan Gleason's character. Brendan Gleason's character. Oh, yeah. yeah, but it's not Hollis. It's it's close to that. Something You'll look like it up. Hugen? Hargis. Hargis is no, 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 no. We can do this, folks. Look it up on the internet. Brendan Gleason. Hamlet. Hamlet. I had the I had the MDB pulled up. Hamish. Hamish. Hamish has a moment with his Hamish has a moment with his father there yeah. as yeah, yeah. as as um, Mel Gibson is like dying in the foreground, but from there we cut to him killing a noble, and then jumping out of a window off on horseback, which is fucking cool. Yeah, yeah, but the, yeah, yeah. But there's no again to the point before of there's there's we're missing the moment of contemplation where Mel Gibson transfers his rage for Murrow to a desire to fight for independence. We miss the moment. Of him going from his lowest back to his full strength. Yeah, it's it's sort of like in Fistful of Dollars when Clint Eastwood's like dying in a casket, and then the next moment he's like shooting guys in the town. Yeah. It 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 goes back to this idea of meaning to buy into the myth of the character. Yeah, we're not taking the time to humanize him, which is another moment when we could have brought us as an audience back to a place of emotional investment in that second half. Yeah, I I think that the second half focuses. On Scotland's arc, I agree. Really, Scotland yeah. as you know, it's really it's it's a character. The place is a character, if you will. <laughs> of course. Um, but I do think that the focus is inst- instead of on um on Freedom Braveheart, the character having his arc on the people of Scotland rallying around the force of William Wallace, trying to um overcome their internal struggles for who's going to lead the battles or be the, the um, highest power in, in Scotland once we do have our freedom, that kind of stuff. Um, and I, to the film's credit, I do find the concept of the legend of William Wallace inspiring other people to be a very fascinating part of the film's world and, and William Wallace as a character because seeing uh, him walk up in front of a giant crowd of guys and, of course, you know, it's Scotland in the, like... 200 BC or whatever the hell has happened and no one no one's ever seen it there's not pictures of him you've only seen it if you've like been in the room with him or seen him on the battlefield so they've all heard stories about him like no he should be 10 feet tall and he he jumps out of windows and slices 10 guys throats with one sword at a time like that element of his character and that like inspiring the rest of the Scots to rally around their sense of freedom which to that point they had been very like staying in their houses T- taking taking the rap on the knuckles and, and worse from like the British ostensibly police that had been installed in their in their towns, watching them sort of grow out of that and become like a unified force, even though they're sort of like ragtag built together with like sho- shoelaces and bubble gum, basically they're like scrapping together like pot lids and stuff for their for their weapons. I find that to be compelling, but I think the film is at odds with itself in the Scottish people rising up behind. William Wallace, and then also about, I would say about half of that second half of the film is going, looking back at Edward Longshanks and his son and his uh, and the son's wife and the 
the wife's uh, um, like friend, and there's like five or six characters from the English side that I don't really care about, and and Edward the Bruce has got his father. It looks like the Elephant Man. It's like what the Robert hell is the going Bruce. on here? Excuse you. Don't care. Is, is, uh, but is, I think that is the father. There's in... too many like B tier characters that we try to focus on in that second half to where it gets a little bit muddled for me. I think the first half is a lot more focused. A, a, it has the comedic tone, which appeals to me a little bit more, but I feel like its focus on William Boss almost solely makes it a little bit easier to be sold into his arc and the momentum of the film, where it feels a little bit muddled to me in that second half when we're jumping around and we're in England here, and then the the uh, the queen, like, princess queen is, is here, and then she's over there, and then the, there's just so much going on that, like, my, my mind doesn't really find it as easy to follow along with or be engaged in any of these scenes or how they connect together. Tim, were you going to say something? Yeah, ask you a question about the father because I also don't know what his deal was. Oh, um, I, I, I don't know what his deal was, but wh who, who played the father? Is it Stellan Skarsgård? Sounded a lot like him. It looks like Stellan Skarsgård, doesn't it? The but voice, it's not. No way. the no. voice was similar too. I thought. Yeah, it looks like him and it sounds like him, but it's not Stellan Skarsgård. But um, his deal, uh, as I understand it, of course, he Leprosy? is Robert, Robert the Bruce's father. Well, yes, he's afflicted with some sort of disease, obviously, but. His deal is that he he's like the true noble of the Bruce family, but because he is afflicted with this disease, he cannot be seen publicly, uh, and so he sort of like defers to Robert the Bruce to be the public face of it. But he is, of course, you know the the puppeteer for the Bruce noble family, who is the controlling noble family of Scotland. Like the, they're the high ups. They're like, uh, and they they want to stay good with the king, obviously. But Robert the Bruce. Uh, his whole conflict throughout the entirety of the film, which becomes a larger focus in the second half, is I like what William Wallace is doing. He's a cool guy. He's a mythical figure. But I think this is this is a line that I wrote down in the film. I've got a thesis, uh, Con. I've got some ideas. Yeah, towards the towards the latter towards the latter half in that second half, he says, "I don't want to lose heart. I want to believe as he did." And that is really the point of that second half of the film, the, the entirety of the film, but really the second half when we are uh, fighting back against Britain, it is about loyalty and like belief in, in, in some sort of sense of larger freedom and doing what must be done to, towards those ends and rejecting these like material or like surface level political uh, sort of connections that all the nobles have with the British crown. It is a, it's about doing what's right. It's about maintaining independence and freedom for your people uh mm -hmm. and, and, and that's what the film's about and that's what makes it uh still compelling for me especially when we are seeing william wallace become like less of a warrior poet i guess you would say and more of like a vengeful spirit as he like appears at the dude's door riding a horse yeah. and like r stomps on stomps on his bed and then jumps out the window with the same horse and he's riding across the mountaintops alone and all of this stuff he he has become like he has attained this level of mythical figure um, that is, you know, more singled out, you know, as he loses the support of the nobles, as he fights back farther and farther against the British crown. But at the same time, um, yeah, I, I, he, I know where I was going with the second half hmm. there, but that, that's sort of my thesis on the second half of the film and why I still find it compelling. Here's kind of why I don't find the second half's theme super compelling in this idea of freedom kind of rings a little hollow because of our setting. And I think our setting of a feudal medieval society in which a, your, your logical brain, and if 
I sp- I have known I know a little bit of history, so I know that your serfs and your your William Wallace characters, your common men, have no chance of having any freedom, even if their lords and ladies are nice to them and like generally good. The the idea that 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 they can go and and rise up against the king and achieve some sort of freedom, which is not very defined in this film. Is it yeah. doesn't ring very true to me because okay, you're just gonna have Robert the Bruce who I mean, sure, he's like a better leader and nicer to the people, but like you are still not free, even in your 1995 American sense of it. The transposition of that value onto a society that is so different and has actual, like, legitimate different values about freedom that are reflected in its political system and in the way and which deeply affects how this film's plot and themes play out because it is in the second half all about who do, who are you aligned with who are you fighting against and so William Wallace is this character that's fighting for freedom in an essentially an impossible battle given that the the society around him will not allow his ultimate vision which would probably be to ransack all of England and kill the king I guess mm-hmm. unclear unclear mm-hmm. so yeah. I find that that I would have liked a bit more of a refined uh, and nuanced take on this. Like, what are they fighting for? They're fighting for sure. for something. They are. They really are. But it's it's beyond just simple freedom. I think that it's mm. that's a very it's a very American way to put it in the film, and it definitely shows the film as it's like this pre nine eleven. Like America is awesome in nineteen ninety five to mm-hmm. according to Americans, and so. This freedom idea percolates a little too far into the film where it maybe shouldn't, or they should reevaluate how it interacts with the, the world that they've created. I don't know if you guys noticed, uh, but there's a lot of a lot of religious imagery in this film. There is, is a there? lot of it. No, I was no, thinking is about there, Abram. No, um, Abram, <laughs> I only really I, I, I really noticed it when it became, you know, uh, I, I think it's subtle all the way through, particularly in the ending scene when uh, William Wallace is, you know, brought in on a cross and is then <laughs> laid out on a cross and is then, you know, hanged and sort of stretched out in a cross form. I think it's really quite subtly done. <laughs> I th- and I think this also sort of speaks to... Again, to Timo's point and to the overall sort of uh, politics or message of the film of just like when Mel Gibson's talking about freedom, he's talking about he's talking about good old American freedom and and the freedom that you get from believing in God and you you die and you live a good life and you go to go to heaven, you see your wife again like that's the film's concerned with freedom in like an ephemeral way. Yeah, and and like in a a religious like American nationalism way, and and it's just part of why, and coupled with the fact that Mel Gibson's not Scottish, Mel Gibson has no concept of what actually happened in this time period. Yeah, well, the, yeah, the, there's just no, there's nothing too Braveheart for me. And again, mm. I don't necessarily say that as a pejorative in the sense that I like a lot of movies that have nothing going on in them. On like a on like a messaging level, but that's why to me I just watch Braveheart and I'm like, yeah, the battles are cool, the cinematography is great, the score is great. They've got mm-hmm. boiling it, oil. What more can you want? Yeah, yes. a lot of boiling. Those motherfuckers can boil oil like nobody else. <laughs> like nobody's goddamn business. They're rivaling KFC. Yeah, I mean, yeah. but, but it's beside Ronald McDonald. Yeah, but it's like 
do you really think that many people who were like financing Braveheart or writing the script or editing the script or like working on pre-production stuff are like, man, I wonder how our themes are going to interface with the, with yeah. like the political situation of Scotland. Nobody gave a fuck. And that's just sort of the the attitude I bring to criticizing the messaging of this film. There just is none because there's no care for it. Yeah. Abram, you're absolutely correct in saying that no one gave a fuck because famously, you know, this film uh, is uh, maligned as one of the most historically inaccurate of all time. I only have I only have some trivia to this effect. I don't have like specific things that they got wrong because there is a lot of it. Believe me, <laughs> I got a couple. Uh, scrolling through trivia, scrolling through some trivia things. Oh, Tucker, you have some specific things. Well, yeah, well, I have some some specific things that are in the plot of this movie that are very that are very explicitly. Did not happen in yeah. real life, um, and that, frankly, almost all of the elements of this film that are iconic and work for a movie script. Of course, you have to reshape history some in some different ways to to apply it to make a three hour film of a mm -hmm. you know guy's thirty thirty year life or whatever. Um, are all fictionalized. His yes. dad well, didn't die when he was a kid. Uh, he was a noble. He was actually a noble. He wasn't a peasant. Uh, he he probably didn't have a wife to die to inspire him. Uh, the English or the French princess was like two years old at the time, so they probably never even met. And he like, there's so many things that either explicitly could not have happened, or so are so unlikely to have happened that this movie is is the most facsimile like hodgepodge together of like there was a guy that fought for Scottish freedom and it would be fun for us to make an action movie about him. Uh, and, and it boils down to that, which makes it like the least like politically interested in actual human history and in, in historical politics that you can possibly get. We talk about uh, a lot of films that are based on history and some of the ways that in which they rub against what actually happened. But this is a film that to me, it doesn't, it doesn't bother me personally um, that it is so divorced from actual history. Frankly, Scotland is so divorced from where my mind is that, like, this could have happened and I would be none the wiser, which, of course, you know, uninformed, dumb American, whatever. Um, but I think it is an indictment on the thematic value of this film or its positioning as uh, as the Scottish historical film of all time, because it kind of is, that they kind of just came up with all this shit. Yes, and, like, um... <laughs> they made a superhero movie about a guy. And if we were, if we had any preconceived notions of Scottish history or the life of William Wallace, we'd be going in like, oh, all right, can't wait to see how they adapt it. What the <laughs> hell is this? What well, did they yes. do? <laughs> Who are these characters? This isn't the this isn't the William Wallace I know. Yes. Okay. So, uh, I I have some I have some stuff about this in the broader strokes in the writing stages of this film. Because, as I said, you know, this is uh, widely considered to be one of the most inaccurate films of all time. Uh, ranked third of most inaccurate film of all time by Wait. the uh, acclaimed British paper, The Times. What's um, I, you got to tell me what number one and two are, man. I got to know. Oh, I don't know. I'll look it up. In the interim. You. Yeah, look, in the, look it up. But uh, writer Randall Wallace, no relation, I assume. Uh, said that he did historical research after completing the script so that dr the dramatic <laughs> elements would take precedence over historical recreation. Uh, okay. and interesting, Gibson, interesting way to do that. I'm pretty yeah. sure most scripts start with research. <laughs> no, nah, not this guy. Um, 
but it, basically, crazy. like, and this is me remembering from from reading through this stuff. He like went to Scotland, learned about William Wallace, and then like wrote a script, having just like kind of heard about him. He like and, he, and he went on. You know what? He went on a walking tour in Edinburgh, and they talked about him. And then he was like, mm-hmm. "This would make a really good movie." And he was like looking around at the like sites, and he's like, "Hmm, yeah, got a script and, coming uh, up." Mel Gibson does have a quote about this. It's quite long, so I won't read the whole thing. But he says, some people said that in telling the story, we messed up history. It doesn't me- it doesn't bother me because what I'm giving you is a cinematic experience. And I think films are there to entertain, then teach, then inspire. There probably there probably were historical inaccuracies, quite a few, but it doesn't but maybe there weren't. Who's to say? There were Mel Gibson. There were many. <laughs> um because though because there was very little history about the man. It wasn't necessarily authentic. In some of the stuff I read about him, he wasn't as nice as he was on film. We romanticized him a bit. But that's the language of film. You have Mel to make Gibson? it cinematically acceptable. Mel Gibson romanticizes himself. <laughs> yes, he does. Yes, he does. He, uh, he he does make a three-hour movie about himself as an overt Christ figure. Yes, uh, the Christ figure, revolutionary, all-around good guy, really nice husband. Who, you know, Super that's, a lot of, that's a bit of wish fulfillment for Mel Gibson in real life. <laughs> <laughs> any other specifics, Tanner? Uh, uh, you know, I mean, uh, let's see if I have anything else here about the inaccuracies. I think I think like a huge amount of the the medieval of the film is inaccurate and that the time if you were to if you were to say okay this is 1300 what what, what armor are they wearing what like oh yeah swords are they using it, i think it's all not very accurate but i don't know it's badass i mean if we're, if we're just gonna go on the value of like entertainment value of these battle scenes i want to point out how that sound editing win is so deserved because they cut out everything in the battle except for the battle scenes, and all you get to hear is a is a is a rhythmic beat of bang swing like splat like it's like yeah. and it's constant and it's it's done so very intent intentionally with the edit, but like if you just sit there and like listen and close your eyes, like it would still be very you would like feel the just like this rhythm of the battle. I think the sound design is is it's very nineties yeah, like it's awesome kind of cliche at times but i think that the they that the rhythm and the editing of it is really good when it comes to just like it's funny if you just it sounds kind of like someone's banging on pots and pans for like a while in the in the battle and it's yeah. and it's that's the only thing you hear it's awesome yeah. i like it yeah i think those battle scenes are phenomenal really it's it's what stuck with me after watching this for the first time several years ago is the scale and impressiveness of these battles uh, they used, I have trivia here, 1,600 extras for those uh, for those battle that. scenes. Uh, Irish most of them were, uh Yeah, well, most of them were reserve in the Irish Army. Uh, <laughs> different companies, you know, from the same area. And ri- and there were actually rivalries common among, amongst these extra companies. Apparently, some of the battle scenes are far more realistic than intended, as people from rival companies were trying to beat each other up. So... <laughs> Fun stuff. Hey, but yeah, I mean, shows. these battles, yeah, these battles are intense. When we are looking at the wide shots of people running across fields, or when we are right up in something as someone is getting hacked or slashed or shot with an arrow, or straight up getting their head chopped off. There's a number of those in this film. Um, you feel it. You feel it. You you feel all the impacts here. You feel the chaos of it. You feel the dirtiness of it. The griminess of it. Well, it's a gr- it's this is a really really impressive. Movie. This is. The- Hair and it's makeup. It's 100% grime time, baby. Oh my god, he, he, 
Mel Gibson stands up in some shots. And you're like, oh my god, he's covered in four layers of sweat and blood and dirt and mud and. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It's awesome. He's, I, I that, really, he's got I really, that. Really he's got that he's rag, impressive. man. That rag of, of his is highly <laughs> suspicious. <laughs> I I think that what really impresses me so much about this film's action and makes it so distinct from other historical um drama historical epics of this kind that have have a lot of action is that the the Scottish team that this guy puts together fights unlike anything you've ever seen in a film. These guys have the weirdest tactics and they're jumping off roofs and they're swinging behind a group of guys yeah, and they're yeah. they're they're building up these you know weird contraptions that are going to take down they're the most ramshackle battering ram made of made of like three guys houses that is like it's so strange and you never know what they're going to do next so it really kept me on my toes to just see what what were they going to pull out of their pockets to like take down the oppressive english forces yeah i really found that to be a fascinating element of this film that gave it an energy and, and a sense of humor in the combat that m- many films don't ever really touch because they're about the grounded realism of battle. But it's like, yeah, okay, these tactics are goofy, but like it, it mimics the energy that the camaraderie of these guys have when we cut back and we and we've got Stephen and Hamish and and uh, and William Wallace in there. You know, they're they're palling around and and throwing crude joke like yo mama jokes basically at each other there is a yo mama joke in this there literally is yes i think he did he did a yo mama joke and a no you in one joke it was really funny um here's something i I really do love the the energy what you what the 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 wackiness of the battles i think is is communicated really well that we see them from the british or the the english perspective a lot of times and we get to see yeah yeah the like Tanner's snobs v slobs, we get to see the snobs' reaction to the slobs and how we they don't fight. know what's going to happen, and and they don't mm-hmm. know what's going to happen, and we don't know what's going to happen, and that's funny to to see what what goes on there. So I just wanted to point out that that's a an interesting choice of how they shoot the battles. I also think that the first battle sequence, which actually might be my favorite in the film, yeah, is, when it's is like, oh, yeah. oh, it's yeah, I got another point, yeah. Here. It's essential because it communicates on a much smaller scale the brutality that every sort of action carries with it. I mean, when... when um, It's like the Northman. Yeah. It's Northman, yeah. When, when William is fighting initially in, in the town, and he gets the hammer, and he's, like, hitting a guy in the back with Jesus the hammer. Jesus Christ, over yeah. Over and over again. He, ta- he takes him out at, the like, the, the knee, and then yeah. crushes him right in the spine, and then just goes for the head. It's like a three-hit combo that he does on this guy. Yeah, everything to cutting off a leg, to smashing a head, to the impact of an arrow, it, it in this more intimate setting, establishes that every one of these weapons means business, and everyone fucking hurts. Mm-hmm. And then, so when you have that knowledge as an audience member, when you end up on these battles that are sort of incalculably or, or sort of incomprehensibly large, you carry with it the knowledge that you know what these guys on a person-to-person level are doing. Yeah. So I think mm-hmm. starting on that scale and, and, and ballooning out from there was a really effective decision on behalf of the choreography and, and, and the cinematography to establish on a sort of visceral level here's what it looks and feels like one to one mm-hmm. now let's make it a thousand to a thousand mm-hmm. and just yeah yeah, yeah. And, and, and you feel it yeah i think the the, the I, I wrote my letterbox review i would go from lying down to somebody started fighting and i'd sit up so I'm like <laughs> ooh, 
cool stuff. And I'd lie back down. But for the time I was sitting up, there was just this harmony of, of technical filmmaking. And I think, yeah. as we were saying at the top, all of those tech awards are deserved. Mm-hmm. The cinematography and editing do a lot of heavy work here. Also, the score does too. Yes, the motion, I love the, the score. The, the score is excellent. And the, the bagpipe is yeah. just a cool instrument. You know, this, the Scottish, God love them. You know, God, you know, they get a lot wrong, but what they got right was that bagpipe. That bagpipe's a hard ass instrument to bring into battle, baby. You got you line you line up five pipers in your backline and just let them blast the whole time. And, yeah. and your enemy, I mean, they might as well just go home because that shit's so annoying that they can't stand it anyway. <laughs> and it, it underscores those battles, and it really it brings out the excitement of them, of course. But it also like just ingratiates you in this like period of Scottish history even though a lot of it was apparently filmed in Ireland there's only a few limited shots actually filmed in the Scottish Highlands but like it makes you feel like you're there when you see William Wallace riding across like a ridge that's like a thousand feet in the air and it's like all misty down below and there's bagpipes playing you're like this is Braveheart baby I'm in it I'm there there's yeah. a beautiful shot where he like crests a mountain and the mm. camera begins to spin, uh, yeah. spin around him, and you get a sense of the of the the scale of the landscape. And to me, those are the moments that largely make me forget the characters and plot and mm-hmm. theme deficiencies. So I'm just like, God damn! Look, 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 look at all those hills, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a similar and, shot when um, when Braveheart Freedom and his wife of 20 minutes are hanging Freedom out Braveheart. on the uh, on the top of the mountain and it's like a nice it's like a nice silhouette two shot and then the camera starts moving backwards and zooming in and you're like oh no this is a helicopter shot and it just keeps going and going and going mm-hmm. you're like ooh I like I said out loud in that moment I was like whoa what a shot I like that I, I like that we're giving this film sort of like a, a Birdman-esque title with Braveheart Freedom and his wife of 20 minutes <laughs> <laughs> yeah I I really think that this film is a remarkable technical achievement and I yeah. I think that and I don't think anyone would really contest this, but that's absolutely why it won Best Picture. Yeah. And made a ton of money at the box office, unlike and many it's epic. Uh, it's, Best Picture winners. It's fun. Yeah. To, it's, it's, it is epic. If you're in 1995, three hours in the movie theater over the summer, I mean, come on. Yeah, wow. and, and I think that the technical skill is also combined with a lot of other factors. It's not just a film that looks really good from a cinematography angle, and there's, you know, there's, of course, the impressive shots of the Scottish countryside and I, I i find that all to be very appealing but i think it's combined with great technical elements of the production design and the performances across the board are not exceptional but they're very grounded in this film's reality and as you said Timo, the sound editing and and the music everything works together to deliver you an entertaining package that is really impressively crafted i mean mel gibson as his first like real feature that everyone knows but his second feature uh, period like this is a this is a crazy feat of direction because the film does have personality and has scope and it, it really does feel distinct from a lot of other historical epics a genre that the academy and especially best picture winners are not you know they don't stray away from we've gotten quite a few of them here we're almost done wings is kind of you know uh historical epic mm-hmm. world war one whatever but um it's the start of really... human history according to movies world war yes one. of course yeah according exactly. to us um, um, but yeah, I, I just think that Mel Gibson did like a really impressive job directing this film did. because it's just it's so distinct in that way. Yeah. And something that I respect about Braveheart and it will always stick in my mind about Braveheart because we'll probably never get anything like it again is the practicality of it. 
1,600 yeah. extras, okay? We are never going to get a... It's... They're just not We're gonna not going to get that. another movie where the where, where you get, where you get sixteen hundred dudes and you have to reshoot the scenes because this is real trivia because some of them were wearing wristwatches and sunglasses when they were filming this stuff. They have to redo it. <laughs> I caught I caught extras looking at the spike in the lens a couple times. I caught extras. Yeah. Like, oh hey camera, and then they move fast <laughs> and like I see you looking yeah. right at me. But like. It's it's just much easier for a production to CGI a field full of guys fighting now. Yeah, they'll get 100 um, dudes, and then they'll put the yeah. remaining 1,500 in computer land. Yeah, or, like, they could, th- this is trivia I found as well. When you see those shots, there's multiple of them, of the archers of any given army, you know, sort of notching their arrows and letting them fly through the air. That's not digital. They could have done that digitally, and, it, you know, it, it maybe would have looked the same, maybe it would have looked worse. Uh, if you're looking at like a Zack Snyder's 300 or something like that, but also they did that for real. Those are real arrows flying through the air, and I ju- that's something I just like dig about this movie is that it's all real. Uh, another real thing: the horses. The horses are, are an important, oh, so in- real. integral part of these battle sequences. Mm-hmm. You're seeing the violence inflicted on these guys, of course, but another element of chaos is seeing a dude like jab a horse in the chest and it goes like tumbling over and the guy flies off and gets crushed by his horse that's that's the chaos and the violence of these battles and they made like 200 mechanical horses for this movie mm, dang. like wow. that were nitrogen powered like they put nitrogen tanks nitrogen in the back powered of these horse and, <laughs> and like pushed them on rails uh, and then stabbed that's cool freedom um, braveheart his wife of 20 minutes and a nitrogen powered horse and their <laughs> nitrogen powered horse <laughs> this the production was investigated by uh, animal welfare organizations because these horses look so realistic. They I were know. convinced that the horses were real, and they just weren't. And they looked really <laughs> impressive. There's um, the there's the crazy moment where, and this is so well edited, and the tension is so high when the heavy cavalry are, are charging, and Fred and Braveheart is yelling, "Hold!" Hold, yeah, hold. Yeah, yeah. He says that so many times. My heart was gonna like come out yeah. my ass. Yeah, and because there's a, there's a, aside from earlier in the film of what are we gonna do against the heavy cavalry? We're gonna make super fucking long spears, twice as long as a man. And and I'm like looking around, like where are these spears? Where are these spears? Well, some and men hold, are longer than others. <laughs> hold, 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 hold. Now and everybody pulls up the spears, and these things are just going through horses. Yes. And there's a, a horse is not a small creature. <laughs> it's notably, notably quite large. And, and, a, and a medieval European war horse is like yeah. the biggest horse you can buy to be the largest and heaviest thing imaginable. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's all really uh, impressive. Yeah, it lo- hmm. And it looks great. And you're so right, Abram, that the editing, I just want to say the editing of the battles yeah. manages to be frenetic super fast and yet very clear we're not cutting on hits and yeah. stuff we're actually seeing all of our practice like so many practical sword hits and like all the everything that you need to do to make a fight look real is happening practically in the film but we're getting boom 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 shot after shot after shot and yet it's still like i'm i know what's happening i can see what's going on like i could tell who's where and who's striking who and what what battle formations are moving into what position and like it, it all functions as a cohesive unit even though an a, a less ed- well edited movie would be all over the place in terms of just visual garbage really during these battles but it's very clear in this yeah, yeah. um i want to do a 
360 from the battles for just a moment to go like to the opposite because as i mentioned at the beginning you know i think mel gibson uh his performance does this but i think the movie as a whole also does this and it, unfortunately because murin dies early on you don't you don't get a lot of it but the softness of it is also quite impressive the scent like that uh scene where they spend the the, the night together they have sex for the first time after they get married is like very well shot it's very slow it's very soft it's very sensual as you're seeing like the, the there. like the <laughs> the blue the moonlight and like the, the, the babbling like brook and the waterfall behind them and the mm-hmm. breath and everything i'm like this is well, they they show they show okay. all their you, boobs. To be fair, yeah, you see yeah. his huge yes. fucking pecs and her boobs. They're both yeah. nipping pretty hard in that it, scene. It, yeah, are. because it's like thirty degrees out, and you see their breath and everything. It's I love it. I I love that scene because it shows that Braveheart can do both if it had the inclination to do more I, of the other, the latter. I agree. I do think it's a little exploitative to to make characters get naked and then to kill them off very shortly later i think oh, that well, fair point. like i don't i don't necessarily think that's like the greatest move ever uh in this movie. but i you know what props to this movie for having a lot of elided sex we we get the the right before it and then we get the day after and we're like yep they fucked we know that thanks mm-hmm. and i i appreciate that way of telling it in the story um but the hollywood movies should do that more i feel like cut out I, I want it. It's the Lubitsch. We don't need sex scene discourse. We don't need sex scene discourse. No, we don't need sex scene discourse on VLB. We need to talk about <laughs> other things from Braveheart. Is there anything else that uh, anyone thinks about Braveheart that's impressive that, that they want to note particularly? All I want to say, Tanner, is I want to say two things. First of okay. all, another great moment of physicality is when um, we've we've just we've just shown our dick and balls to the Englishmen, yeah. and they're shooting yes. more arrows at us. <laughs> We get these hyper closes of of uh, of freedom and the the God lover and there and and he's like who's he's the like, God Dan. lover? Stephen. 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 Oh, and the Stephen, Irish guy. Stephen's like, damn freedom! I've been talking to God. And he says, I'm gonna be fine, but you're kind of fucked. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's it, so he's like, God says you're gonna die, buddy. It, it's not only a <laughs> so great dialogue, dialogue exchange, but the arrows penetrating the shields right yes. next to their faces <laughs> is great. Again, great moment of tension. All I want to say though, Tanner, is you're making all these big claims about the death of practicality. When Dune Part Two is nominated for Best Picture, and we talk about the real sandworm, I'm gonna make you eat your hat. Yeah, fair point. You know what? I will. I will wear a hat to eat. Okay. Uh, when they when they breed and genetically modify a real muadib. No, not not a muadib. Uh, oh, Shai Halud. Shai Halud. Thank you. I. I betrayed myself as a Dune fan. Forgetting get the terminology hour, there. We get to minute hour ten of the episode, and we're devolving into <laughs> Dune trivia. Anyway, I heard, the, I heard they're developing actual Pandora for Avatar Four. Oh yes. <laughs> yeah, they're just gonna film it in Disney World. Can't wait to go. Uh, <laughs> a great reference. I do oh, have. Oh wait, clear the field. They're gonna make the next Star Wars movie at Galaxy's Edge. Oh, there we go. Uh. Good stuff. Uh, I do have one final bit of trivia that is really. Uh, Taylor made for one Tucker Hazel here because it involves one of his favorite directors who was also nominated for Best Picture in 1995. You want to you want to try and take take a stab at this one, Tucker? Woody favorite Allen? director? Move what? Woody Allen? No, 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 no. Other guy, other guy. You really like you Harry watched? Gilliam? No, jo- you watched jo- most jo of Russo? his movies recently. Watched most movies recently. Yeah, you watched most of his movies recently. Oh, 1995, God. big movie starring Tom Hanks, 
starring uh, uh, Gary Sinise, starring uh, uh, Kevin Bacon. Oh, Robert Zemeckis? Wait. No. Ron Howard, uh, Tucker. Ron Howard. Oh, I forgot about him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Your number one guy. Anyway, so I'll, I'll get to it. We can pull up the score sheet if we'd like. Um, so Mel Gibson was on the set of Ransom, his 1996 film, <laughs> when Braveheart was nominated for Best Picture, along with Ron Howard's Apollo 13. Uh, he pulled a prank Bad on movie. Ron Howard and the producer of that film, Brian Grazer, by giving them an ad that claimed that claimed that Braveheart was considered for the Best Moonshot Award, uh, <laughs> showing him a picture, of course, of all the Scottish soldiers uh, showing their ass to the, Brit- the British Army. So, just a funny little joke that, that, that Mel funny. Gibson pulled there. He's such a funny little guy, isn't he? Well, well you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, Hollywood may have forgiven him, but you know we haven't. We I, don't, have I don't think. A tone, a tone. BLB does not forgive Mel Gibson. No, crazy that he said all that shit, and then they're like, uh, it, it gave, they gave him like what, fifteen years after that, and he's like, yeah, you're back in. We'll not. Hey, well, Hacksaw Ridge is a good movie. I haven't seen Hacksaw Ridge, so it's I a good movie. I watched it on an airplane, so maybe you know. it's so good that I'll also forgive forgive Mel Gibson, but I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't forgive him, but it's a good movie. Okay. Oh, yeah. Passion of the Christ Two: Christ Returns, the Resurrection. That's not what it's called. Passion of the Christ <laughs> Two: Easter. Uh, yeah, yeah. Shall we give this film a score? Shall we punch a number in? I've been, I I was kind of brainstorming what number I'm going to give this movie the whole episode. I think I know what it is now, though. Yeah. 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 Okay, let's do it. Are we ready to find out? Three. Yes. Two. One. Go. Whoa. Solid range here. Yeah, Yeah. we've got ourselves a a score. It is 7.3. Let's see what we have to do in the tie zone. Oh, yeah. We've got three films we're going to have to debate it. But oh, before not again. We, before we dive into that rat's nest, the point breakdown starting at the bottom, I gave it a six, followed by Abram's 7.2, and then uh, Tucker's 7.7, and then finally Tanner's 8.4 at the top. So a pretty big spread, actually. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Starting with our number 64. First film on the list with a score of 7.3, The Last Emperor. Historical epic. Braveheart, above or below? Above. 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 Okay. Continuing on. Forrest Gump, of recent memory. Should be easy to compare. 7.3. At the 60th spot. Above or below? Two America movies. True. I say say above. I say above as well. Below. I'm going to say above. I I, I think Brave... Well... Yeah, I gave Forrest Gump a, a 0.7 higher score. I'm going to say above. I think for uh, a Braveheart, in that it has less to say, but is more fun and awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it is more fun and awesome. This is hard to dispute. I believe that's what we're, uh, what we're judging here on uh, the quest for the best. <laughs> yes. And finally, Timo, last one of these two, fall above or below. 59th spot, The Deer Hunter. Above. 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 Well, I, I think I'm going to say below, but I'm uh, okay. I'm overruled. It's all right. There we go. At spot. High climber. Yeah. It climbed above all three of its opposition. So Braveheart is going to go at spot number 59. That's right. Sure. I, I, I think the last thing I'd say about Braveheart is that I just think, because we didn't talk too much about the runtime of the film. We talked about what it does at the runtime, but three hours, I just think that 
Braveheart gives us too much time to think about what it lacks. Oh, yeah. If, I mean, yeah. if this was a two-hour film and it had the same level of characterization and thematics and plot, I think you could have easily put another point on my score. But when, we, when we're when we going to three hours, I'm looking for a little bit more. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, I just, I mean, and I just don't think we're provided with that. I'll be honest. I, I, thought, I found it pretty breezy, to be honest with you. I, I, it's one of, the, one of the breezier three-hour films I've had the pleasure of watching. It's no John Wick Four. It <laughs> is no John Wick Four. That's true. That's true. Oh shit! Wait to review that next year. You know what I'm saying? Funny, boys? funny thing about Only. it is that <laughs> I feel the length of John Wick Four, but I revel in the length of John Wick Four. Mm. I love it. I love the length of John Wick Four. Yeah, because it rolls down that staircase for the third time. You're like, let's yeah. go! Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. Um, but yeah, there you have it, folks. Uh, sadly. No wheel this week. No wheel no. because we are so. The wheel died. We're got. We we didn't mourn it. We can mourn it now. We can have like a little bagpipe. Oh, the death of the wheel. The bagpipes. It's perfect. Can you make an... There we go. Funeral of the wheel. Mm-hmm. Can you make an image of the wheel on a cruci- on like a cross? Yeah, I think I'll the wheel. We're gonna, we'll, we the gotta wheel. give it a a Viking funeral. We gotta send it out on a boat and whoosh, light an arrow on fire and. We'll, we'll we'll do a Viking funeral where it's on a cross. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. We'll, put, we'll put a cross we're, on the boat and we'll send we're it We're mixing our metaphors here a little bit, but I'm okay with this. I don't care. Those good old Vikings, you know, they were known for being real good Christians. Yes, God-fearing Christians, those Vikings. Just like us. Well, there's no wheel because <laughs> there are two movies left, but we've decided which one we're doing last, so there's only one movie that is our option for next week. Tucker, yeah. what film are we going to be watching as the oh, second I, I didn't to even last pull it up. Yeah, episode? It's, we're all pulled out of whack here. The, the, let's, let's, the, the, I'm revealing it as I type it into Letterbox. Yes. All the King's Men. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yep. 1949 Best Picture winner, directed by Robert Rawson, starring Broderick Crawford, John Ireland, Joanne Drew, and John Derrick, and Mercedes McCambridge. Is this Shepherd movie? Strudwick. About? Ralph Dunkey. <laughs> is this movie, perchance, <laughs> about the English royalty? Uh... All the King's Men is the story of the of the rise of politic politician Willie Stark from a rural country seat to the governor's mansion. He might have been a pretty good guy if too much power and women hadn't gone to his head. <laughs> oh, <laughs> these women are going to his head. Oh, not Hello. that. <laughs> well, <laughs> so is it, it is it British then? Is it like or American politics? I don't know. We'll find well, out his next name time. Is Willie and there's women on his head. Hold on. <laughs> give, give me a week. <laughs> We're going to find week. out about all the King's Men. We're going to see, is this a British movie? Ooh, is it about ooh, Royal Family? Hour 50, let's go. Oh, nice and light. That is good to hear. That is good to hear. Yeah. Thanks yeah. for discussing Braveheart. I, had a, I actually had a very enjoyable time watching it. This is a very enjoyable movie, just to sit back and enjoy. Um, I said the same thing twice in that sentence. Yeah. Anyway... We're going to see you all next week to talk about all the Kingsmen. Until then, stay cool, keep warm, and peace.